All right, hey everyone, welcome to our first Q&A episode. Uh, this is our first crack at some more laid back, long form content. Um, Zach and I have conversations about some of these topics all the time and we figured uh, going ahead and, and, and recording some of these conversations and putting them out there might be of benefit to some of you. Um, so with that out of the way, we'll go ahead and jump right into the first question. Zach, if you wanna, if you wanna throw the first question we have um, from our client submitted questions, um, if you want to throw it out there and we can tackle that first one. Sure. So I uh, just want to take a shout out to our clients for taking the time to uh, ask some questions for us. Like Josh said, we have these conversations all the time and figure we might as well, you know, throw the mics on and see if we can record some stuff and help some people out with kind of our thought process. But like he said, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. So Josh, the first question that we got was, so when you're using a 10 RM load, is there any advantage in terms of hypertrophy? from doing, let's say, three sets of eight at an eight RPE versus some different combination of reps that, that are lower on the RP range, like eight sets of three at a three to four RP or four sets of six at a six RP. So I love this question. Um, this is both one of Zach and I's primary uh, interests in terms of research, which is proximity to failure and how it influences um, short-term strength adaptations, as well as, as this question pertains to hypertrophy. Um, so basically what we have here, um, so I'm going to kind of tackle this and explain one side of the coin, and we'll probably um, argue against ourselves a little bit here. Um, so a 10 RM load, which is, you know, around 75% or so on average. Um, so basically the question is asking if you have, uh, you know, a fixed number of repetitions completed with that load. So in this case, uh, 24 reps does getting closer to failure, so essentially doing those 24 reps in less set, give you an inherent benefit for hypertrophy? So first, the, the first thing to say is that based on the research, there is no clear indication that that would be the case. Now, some studies definitely indicate or, 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 or lean in that favor. However, that is not unanimous by any means. Um, if anything, our interpretation of the research is that with heavy loads, um, somewhere around a 10 RM load or heavier, as long as you're doing, um, as, as long as the number of repetitions are equated, um, the growth will be equivalent. However, something I will say to, again, kind of argue against myself here is an inherent advantage to being closer to failure um, in the sense that your RPE ratings are going to be more accurate. Um, so again, we think uh, what I was saying about uh, you know, just equating repetitions and, and proximity to failure not being a primary factor in terms of the growth stimulus, um, you know, that's only with a, a sufficiently heavy load. So of course this would not apply if you're, if you're using something like 50% or even 60%. But in order to ensure that's the case, it might be a benefit to train with a somewhat close proximity to failure so that you can ensure that the load is heavy enough. Because as, as we get closer to a 10 RPE, um, the accuracy of the RPEs increases. So if, if, you know, if you're doing eight sets of three at an RPE three to four, who's to say that RPE three to four is not actually more like 12 repetitions in reserve, in which case, um, you know, the load you're using is no longer sufficiently heavy in order to get away with staying farther from failure and still getting the, an equivalent growth stimulus. So generally speaking, we, you know, I, I, I would probably take the position as of now that if you are certain it's a 10 RM load or heavier, um, 
as long as the number of repetitions is equated, we don't think, uh, uh, or I should say, we, we think that the growth stimulus is going to be about equal. So let me know where you disagree there, Zach. No, I think for the most part, I'm on the same page. I think as far as, um, you know, a, a lot of this comes from, from our experience, first and foremost, is that, you know, I think a lot of times people kind of downplay how hard a set at RPE5 is um, and, and kind of don't really internalize what that exactly means um, in terms of, you know, how hard that actual set is. So I think when people say, dude, you can't train at a three to four RPE and, and get a good growth stimulus. Are you crazy? It's like, I see where you're coming from, but at the same time, you know, we know from some of the, the RPE accuracy literature that a, what people are calling RPE8 probably isn't two repetitions in reserve. And I think, you know, anybody that's been training long enough kind of can tell that with themselves, you know, Josh, we've talked recently, like I've been doing belt squats. Uh, it's just a new movement for me. And my goal, this, this first block has to been to take those, those sets to a, to an absolute true two to three RAR. And I am failing miserably. <laughs> like I, I've done the first few sessions and those sessions are extremely hard, but upon video review and kind of talking it over with you, I would say objectively, I'm probably six, for somewhere around in that range, RAR. Um, and those sets are still very hard, but you know, I, I think that just kind of paints the pictures of what we're saying to a certain extent is that when we say you can train at a, you know, maybe even a little bit less than a five RPE and still get really good hypertrophy, in the grand scheme of things, you're probably doing something similar to that when you're say you're training at like a seven right now. So I think that's one thing when you know you might be relatively skeptical when you when you hear that right off the gate. As far as research that kind of influences our opinions on this. I think one paper that is very, very solid to kind of back up the stance is that recent Levickius paper um, that, you know, they trained with 80% of one RM in one group and essentially got the same, the same growth with six RAR with 80%. So generally 80% is going to be around that eight RM range. Um, the one paper that kind of starts to get a little more fuzzy is that Karsten paper that used 75% of one RM that had some mixed results in terms of the hypertrophy outcomes. I think like the anterior delts, were just as good in the farther from failure group, but then some of the other muscle groups um, probably were uh, in favor of the groups training closer to failure. So I think that's where it starts getting a little bit, like you mentioned, once you start dipping below that 10 RM range, that's when things get a little bit more um, necessary in terms of proximity to failure. But as far as we're concerned and, and, and kind of in line with our experience too, like as long as you're above that range, a rep kind of seems to be a rep. Now, you know, there's definitely a time and a place to take sets closer to failure. And there's not necessarily, like you said, you outlined some logistical reasons why you wouldn't want to do that uh, some of the time. And, you know, there, there definitely could be some other advantages that, you know, in, in the grander scheme of a periodized plan that you might want to take advantage of training closer to failure um, in some instances, but purely in this theoretical example of the question, that's kind of where we stand. Um, and I think that is kind of the a good way to conceptualize it as, as of now, which is definitely subject to the change as we get more research. But as of now, that's kind of kind of the way I think about it too. Yeah, one, one last thing before we get on to the second question is to reemphasize, you know, what I was saying before, and Zach, you kind of touched on this, um, is that for logistical reasons, in terms of making sure you're still training somewhat hard, I think it is important to, you know, take some set to RP seven, eight, even nine range sometimes. Um, so that reminds me of, of some of the research that would favor um, a closer proximity to failure for muscle growth. Um, for example, the, there's a study by Goto from 2005, which heavily favored a group that um, 
completed all of their repetitions in one set, um, and, and that group was to failure. Whereas the second group um, did their first five repetitions, um, they rested a little bit, and then they completed their last five repetitions of the set. So essentially an intraset rest period, right? So that intraset rest period serves as um, reducing the proximity to failure, or, or, or to be more clear, um, keeping them farther from failure at the end of that set. In, the, in that study, the, the failure group grew a lot more, right? However, um, we suspect, or, or something we're not sure of, is whether that non-failure group, right, the group that had the intraset rest, whether, like how they knew how strong they were getting week to week, if that makes sense, right? If, if, you're, t if you're finishing each set and, um, you know, you're, you're not approaching failure at all, there's really no way to, to accurately measure the effort, um, it's hard to progress load properly. Okay, whereas the failure group had kind of a built-in progression by taking every set to failure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not entirely clear in the paper, um, you know, not, not that this is the author's fault, but this is just, you know, something inherent to non-failure training, is that, um, you know, how do you know how strong this individual in the non-failure group is getting throughout the study? Because if they're still using the same load from week one, and they're a novice trainee, they could be, you know, 40% stronger than at the beginning of the study, and now we're getting to those loads where we do think um, a closer proximity to failure is necessary, right? Um, once you get below kind of this 10 to 12 RM load, again, that's kind of a ballpark, but, but I think it's a, a, you know, I think the idea still applies. So again, from a practical perspective, we're not saying that all your work should be RP three to four. That's not what we do in practice. Um, there's a ton of utility. I think we're just tr kind of trying to normalize you know, I think a lot of people kind of don't even like, oh, that set was a warm up because it was below RP6 or, oh, that set wasn't effective. Oh, that set, um, you know, I'm going to have to add load for the next set because this wasn't an RP6 or they won't even like, they won't even rate the set if it was below an RP6. I think I've, I've seen we, that a lot. I've seen that yeah. a lot. You don't even count the set if it was below RP6 and it's like, man, that's, that's kind of where we're trying to turn it on its head. It's like, we're not saying you should be training at RP1 your whole training career. We're saying it's these, these sets are still productive, especially if they're heavy enough loads. Um, and there might be some, some benefits, um, especially when it comes to short to moderate term strength, but that's a, that's another discussion. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to clear that up and, and hopefully offer some, some slightly more practical insights. Yeah. So just, to, just to wrap up the kind of succinct answer to that question, um, it, at face value, do we think there's a hypertrophy advantage? inherently between the different set configurations listed in the question? I don't think so. Um, at face value, given the current way that we conceptualize these things. However, as we hopefully made clear in this question, for, for logistic, logistical and practical reasons, we do think that training closer to failure has some uh, advantages in terms of uh, making sure that you're at a heavy enough load, and then maybe some other um, advantages in the grander scheme of a, a periodized macro cycle. So we'll leave it at that. We can probably talk about that one for days, Josh. Um, I don't know if you want to read in the next question. Sure. All right. Question number two. So on the topic of self-coaching, what are some key variables that you might have to take into consideration that you wouldn't otherwise have to with a, with a client? This is a good one. Uh, I think I think this is something you could really relate with because we both kind of half coach each other and we both kind of half uh, self-coach one another. 
Um, so Josh and I, you know, we, we kind of, you know, frequently talk about our own training and kind of different ideas and how we're dealing with our own kind of neurotic personalities uh, to try to get through things. So I think, I think this is a really interesting question, but um, as far as key variables that you need to take into consideration that you might not with the client, I think the, the first and foremost thing that comes to my mind is just taking into account your personality. Um, even even more so than, than you would with a client. So, you know, the client coach dynamic to a certain degree, um, the client is going to defer to, to the coach's opinion. And I think that's kind of a, an implied relationship. And, that, and that's kind of just how it goes. And so when the coach gives client feedback, um, they'll put their kind of own ego at the door to some degree and, and take on what the coach says. Now, that's not to say that that's the perfect relationship for a coach client. We think it should be collaborative. A lot of individualization should occur. But at the end of the day, that's kind of how a coach client relationship works. Um, however, with yourself, the coach and the client are the same person and they're speaking out of the same mouth. So a lot of the times, um, you can convince yourself from the coaching side of your brain to the client side of your brain, like, Hey man, you got 10 more pounds today. You can, you know, definitely do another set when you're, when your quads are already wrecked on something. Um, and, and a lot of those things that, you know, no matter how much literature you read, no, how much, how much experience you have and how well, you know, the kind of X's and O's of these conversations to some degree, if you want progress more feels like the answer almost always. So I think it's just, it's very, very difficult uh, to, to self coach yourself um, to some degree and, and completely remove that. And I think once you just acknowledge that on the front end, there is some, some modifications that you can make from a programming perspective to just acknowledge that and train appropriately. So one thing that I've done recently that I think has really, really, really helped is I think especially in today's era of, you know, uh, strength training and strength sports and powerlifting, uh, you know, top sets have become very, very popular. Um, it's something nearly everyone does, um, taking weights over 85% essentially year round. Um, but what happens often in this Instagram culture, posting your PRs, posting your top sets, always pushing for more, is you really start to feel like adding five pounds every single week is totally necessary. And so one thing I did to kind of try to cut that in the back is I've been using these, what I just call top set constraints. And so instead of allowing myself to get extremely neurotic and, oh man, my single didn't go up five pounds this week, or I'm putting five pounds on this bar no matter what, because I have to progress. Um, and, and just overthinking that decision-making process. I, I've essentially capped the jumps that I'm allowed to use to something that's large enough that I, I can't just trick myself into saying that's a good idea. If it's not there on that day, I'm not going to take a 20 pound jump. That's going to be an overshoot by an RP, like one or two RP um, from what's prescribed. Like that, that's just way harder for me to, to, to rationalize that rather than, you know, maybe I'm supposed to sit, hit a single at an eight RP that day. The warm up prior was seven and a half. And, you know, rather than just leaving that at the door and understanding that that's totally sufficient to get the job done. I'm putting five pounds, 10 pounds more on the bar because I have to have to progress from last week or it just something to that degree where you force load progression when it's not necessary. So that's been something that's really helped me. Um, Josh, go ahead and add anything else. That's kind of where my head went immediately. So really quick, uh, you were talking about the, the load, the top set load constraints you, you give yourself. Um, maybe just take a step back and, uh, and explain that how, how you set up that protocol for the listeners just to make sure it's uber clear. Good call. Uh, yeah. Because I, I, I've been using that 
for myself, which I, I, I agree with you, Zach, it's, it's been quite helpful. Um, I've been using it with some clients, um, albeit reactively as opposed to proactively. Um, I, do, uh, I do think this is something that is pretty helpful for self-coaching. Um, but again, just kind of take a step back and, and explain where you start those jumps and how exactly you execute that yeah. um, so, the, so the listener understands. Yes, that's a, that's a good call. Um, so essentially the idea is um, kind of the overall idea for me was to install this method so I'm more comfortable with taking the same weight multiple times and comparing that week to week and just understanding that load progression is probably not realistic week to week. So I kind of started thinking, what's a way I can do this that makes sense? Um, so the idea is essentially from your 1RM, you take approximately a 5% jump. Uh, from the 1RM value, whatever you have. For stronger guys, that's going to be a little bit bigger. For weaker guys, that's going to be a little bit uh, smaller of a jump. For me, it's around 10 kilos for my squat and my deadlift, and a little bit less than that for my bench. So the idea is once I get to about you know, 80, 85%, I'm only allowed to take those jumps. So I'm only allowed to take 5% jumps from 80 or 85%. So I warm up, you know, whatever your, your accustomed warm up is, you know, you take a couple warmups and then you finally get to that weight that's about 80, 85%. And then from there, I start taking 10 kilo jumps only. And so the idea is I tell myself, whatever the prescribed RP range is, I do a, I do a set and then I ask myself, am I 100% confident that, you know, I can take the next 10 kilo jump? And, you know, that may not sound like a big difference, but again, when you're in the moment and you realize that, you can't really rationalize if you're the bar is moving slow, you don't feel as good. Um, and you know, it's one of those days where you probably shouldn't put any weight on the bar. It often results in you just taking the same weight over and over and over again. And then you get to start to talk about these, some of these subjective things that we always talk about, like decreased performance anxiety for the same load. And you just start to pick up on some of these other indicators of progress rather than just fixating on the weight on the bar all the time. So again, just to reiterate, you know, you warm up, get to about 80, 85%. And then you use this fixed, uh, the fi this fixed number for what jumps you're allowed to take, which is, you know, in my, in my experience, the larger, um, it is. So you can't just rationalize, you know, I'm going to put two and a half kilos on the bar because I more than last week kind of thing. Um, making it big enough that you have to kind of think about it and say, am I 100% confident I will stay in the RP range on the next jump. And if the answer is no, if you even have to think about it for a second, then don't do it and don't go up and just stay there. And in my experience, that has significantly decreased the amount of times that I overshoot, the amount of times that I make a really, really bad decision and I get frustrated with progression. And honestly, it's made the blocks a lot cleaner because I'm taking the same weight every week. And then with the addition of velocity, I can, can kind of compare those things um, a little bit, a little bit uh, easier. And it just kind of gives me a good indication of where I'm at rather than just having to fixate on adding weight to the bar all the time. So hopefully that give a better kind of idea of what, what it's all about. Yeah, and just to, as kind of an icing on the cake for, for those constrained load jumps, um, I just wanna emphasize that it's the same loads every week, right? So I think that's an important thing to, that any lifter should, should learn or, or to learn to be okay with, but especially when, when you, know, you are self-coached and you don't have an outside point of view kind of you know, putting the goalposts up, so, you know, just to, to, again, make this very crystal clear, let's say somebody's bench uh, max is about 300 pounds. So 80% of 300 pounds is 240. Okay, so 
starting at 240 when you're warming up to, you know, let's say a single RP8, once you get to 240, right, you've hit 240 for your warm up. And then after that, you're only allowed to add, say, you know, let's say 15 pounds. So every single week, you're going 240, 255, 270. So maybe for weeks two through five of this block, you're hitting 270 every single week um, for your single. Because your next option is to jump up to 285. And you're only allowed to go up to 285 if you are 100% sure that 285 is not going to be an overshoot. I think, I think, I think that's a big part of it is taking the exact same load week to week and learning to be okay with that. Um, something that Zach and I are lucky to have access to are velocity trackers. Um, and spoiler alert, the next question is on this, so I'm not going to spoil it too much. Um, but I have found that that kind of gamifies it in a way. So even if you know, you're not taking another jump this week, maybe you hit it for 0.02 meters per second faster. Um, and that can kind of add to some of the enjoyment thing. Cause I just, you know, Zach, Zach and I talk about this quite often. It's just not thinking about progress on a week to week basis. Um, you know, especially in hypertrophy focused phases, we don't think it's super important to, you know, overthink top set loads. Really, we're just trying to get some decent practice. Um, so just, just learning to take the same exact loads week after week. Um, well, not week after week, but for an extended period of time, even if it is a handful of weeks, I think it's totally fine. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, um, that load jump, uh, that warm up constraint is, is a really good example of some considerations for self coaching. Um, and even if you, if you do have a coach, I also think is a good, is a good strategy. Um, so just, just to add a couple things on the self-coaching question in general. Um, something that, you know, is helpful when having an outside source. So, okay, let's, let me take a step back. Obviously we're biased in the sense that Zach and I are coaches. Um, and I think you can be very successful self-coached. Absolutely do not need a coach, you know, watch Johnny Candido's recent video on self-coaching. That's a really good resource. Um, and I think, so, so again, I, 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 I want to make that very clear. Um, but, I, but I do think there is value to having an outside source kind of work through some of the guesswork, right? Programming, you know, what you actually put down on the spreadsheet is not an ex exact science, right? You can have very good frameworks and a, and a good understanding of best practices um, in terms of programming. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of it is guesswork. You know, I'm not entirely sure certain whether my back off should be with 70% or 75%. Um, you know, and there's really no way to know that. Um, so when I'm programming for myself, something that I've, I've kind of struggled with a little bit is, you know, when I'm executing this program um, or when I'm executing a session, I'm aware of the exact things I was uncertain of when I was programming it. So that's something that I I, I think is, is something to take into consideration, just remind yourself of, um, is, and, and that's why I'm often consulting Zach and asking him, Hey, can you look this over? Like, can you make sure this is all sound? Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's something is, is having somebody to consult with, even if it's a buddy at the gym, if it's, you know, somebody that doesn't live with you, if you're just sending top sets to them or sending, um, you know, your program to them, Hey, can you look over this and just kind of get the all clear and, and, and take some of that guesswork out of it. Um, and also kind of a practical thing for me that I, I need to remind myself of is I find myself writing my programs right before I'm about to train. 
Um, just because I kind of put it off, right. I'm, I'm focused on obviously getting client programs out, um, you know, as a priority. And then Monday morning, I'm like, Oh shoot, I need to set up my next couple weeks of training. And I'm about to go train in an hour. And I struggle because I think a lot of us have this drive to go train hard, right? Like Zach was saying, we have this assumption, which is almost always inaccurate that more is better, right? Training harder is better. Training harder is going to get me where I want to go faster. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. So something in I struggle is like, Oh, intro week one, session one, you're telling me in one hour, I have to go do this like super easy session, which is actually what's best for me, but I don't want to do that. Like I'm, you know, I just came off a deload. I'm ready to train hard. Um, that's something I struggle with. So I need, I need to kind of like detach myself as much as possible while writing my program um, and kind of do it ahead of time so that I can, again, detach from, you know, what I'm about to do. It's the same thing as like going to the grocery store with your hungry. I feel like, like sometimes I'll, I'll, uh, I'll like fill in the exercises for my program and then like, you know, maybe I'll go do something. I forget to, that I was writing it or something. Um, and then I get to Monday and then I, I, I forget that I didn't finish it. And so I have like the exercise filled out and they're like, that's the worst feeling. Like I, I'm at the gym right now. I, you know, it's half filled out. I thought it was already done. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing today. And you know, you just max out. So, <laughs> but no, I, I'm totally with you. I think that, um, you know, having, having someone to just kind of, I don't, I don't know, validates the right word, but just like tell you you're on the right track and not have to be like, well, should I have done 77 and a half percent? And in reality, that doesn't matter. And even if you know that doesn't matter, sometimes it's just nice to have somebody kind of, kind of take a peek at that. But um, again, we could go on this for hours, so we'll keep it moving, uh, hit up the next question. So uh, Josh, is purchasing a velocity tracker or a, also known as a linear position transducer, worth the investment for powerlifters? Do you feel velocity data provides a meaningful benefit over just recording your subjective RPE? And then maybe to add on to this, at what point, if, if it is a good move for powerlifters, at what point do you think investing in, a, in, in an LPT is the right move? So this is an interesting question. Um, you know, just to be very transparent, I've, I have uh, an LPT, but I've had it for about four weeks or so. So I'm gonna kind of spitball some thoughts um, and we'll probably record another one of these, um, in the future and we'll, this topic will come up again and I might be singing a different tune. Um, so first things first, I've had quite a few clients ask me like, Hey, I'm interested in, in purchasing a linear position transducer. Like, do you think this is worth it? Do you think it's worth the investment? I think most of them run about 400 bucks right now, right? That's a, that's a decent chunk of change. So I think this is a really good question to ask. Um, so one of the questions uh, baked in here is, do you think the velocity data provides a meaningful benefit over just using RPE? I think RPE gets you about 98% of the way there. So, you know, right up front, I just want to say, no, you don't need a velocity. You don't need a linear position transducer. Um, RPE is widely available. Um, anybody can use it. I think that's awesome. I think that's a, a, a huge benefit to it. There's no, so I don't, I don't want anybody to feel like they are getting worse gains because they don't have a velocity tracker. Okay. But I will say I've over the few weeks I've been using one, um, I have found it quite useful for top sets in particular. So, okay. There's two things actually that I've, I found it useful for. The first one is top sets. So as I alluded to before, um, you know, where we have these exact same loads we're using on top sets week to week, that does a couple things for me. 
the first one is it kind of gamifies the warmups. Um, something Zach and I talk about is is warmups are training volume, and I think a lot of I think we often forget about that sometimes. Um, so, and something we also emphasize is maximal concentric intent. So moving the the concentric portion of each repetition as fast as possible can um, can benefit training adaptations. Um, so while you're warming up and as you get to these, you know, low jumps that you're taking week to week, by tracking the velocity, you can kind of compare week to week and see where your performance is at for the day and get an idea of, of where you might fall for the day. So that does two things. It, it, it first of all, keeps you honest um, in the sense that it's a lot easier to accept that it's a quote unquote down performance if your velocity is objectively showing you right there um, that you just haven't been as fast on your warmups. Um, you know, I don't think it's a perfect science, but I think it's another tool to kind of add to your decision making. Um, and it also encourages me to take my, my warmup sets seriously um, and to move them quickly, which again, I think will have a benefit in and of itself. Um, you know, I think when I'm, when I'm warming up to, you know, let's just say I have a single at eight and, um, it's easy to convince myself that, oh, I'm, you know, I can definitely take this next jump. It's, it's still going to be a, an RP8. But if I have this velocity saying, like, no, the last three warmups have been slower than what you usually are hitting them at, it's a lot easier for me to just be like, all right, I'm just going to take us a, a later load today and move on. So that's the big thing. So that's the first thing I wanted to, to point out is, um, you know, accepting slightly less load on top sets. Um, that's where I found it, 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 it quite useful as well as, um, confirming to me when things are going well, I think, you know, for the same exact reasons, um, kind of confirming that things are moving well in the day. The second thing is, um, on back offsets, I found I'm a lot more engaged with my back offsets, um, because it's kind of gamified in a sense. So I'm currently in a, what we call a low fatigue strength phase, um, where I'm doing a lot of doubles, a lot of triples, um, with with loads that are, are decently heavy, but the RPEs are, are you know typically below RP6. So it, it would be kind of easy to coast through them, but by having the velocity there, it kind of gamifies it in a way in the sense that I'm, I'm trying to beat last set, um, or I'm trying to beat last week with you know whatever load I used last week. So um, as well as encouraging maximal concentric intent. So those are the two things are so selecting top set loads um, and either confirming that I'm, I'm, I am indeed weaker or stronger on the day, or the second one, just kind of gamifying some of the more tedious work that is necessary. Um, but of course, coasting through it would be a negative. I found that to be helpful as well. Yeah, I mean, I overall, I think I largely agree. That's been my experience too. I've been using one for uh, probably about a year now. Um, been using an LPT. I think, you know, I just want to echo Josh's statement about it. You know, RP is going to get you 98% of the way there. I think that, um, and, and the other thing to take into account too, is that RP gets better with, with experience. So that might go from 95 to 99, maybe, uh, depending on, um, how, how good you are with your RP ratings. Um, just a few things to add there. Uh, one point in the column of RPE is that RP is going to be inherently individualized. Uh, one, one thing with velocity is that it's going to be exercise, uh, dependent. It's going to be, 
Um, I mean, that's the primary limitation. It's exercise dependent and it's also individual dependent, meaning I can't use Josh's velocity uh, profile that I have to use my own uh, for, that to be, to, for that to be somewhat useful. Now, there are relatively simple ways to get a velocity profile. I don't think that's a huge, a huge, uh, um, a huge con in, in, in the, the sense of velocity. But the point is that, you know, no matter what gym you're at, no matter what exercise you're doing, um, RP is going to be already good to go for that exercise. If I have a new, uh, a new block and I have to do a single on deficit deadlifts um, that I haven't done in months, RP is good to go. So I think that's just, it's important to realize that yes, velocity has a ton, ton of um, benefits. And I'm going to list one here in a second, but at the end of the day, RP is inherently individualized to whatever you're doing to you as an individual and the movement. Um, so it's, that is one point that if you ever do need to fall back on RPE, it's good for that, definitely. Uh, the other thing I think that velocity definitely helps with, especially in kind of the way Josh and I conceptualize training. So we just had that question uh, discussing how important we think it is to kind of stay above that 10 RM load or so if you're training far from failure. Uh, one thing velocity can do is, you know, even when you're staying really far from failure, it can, can kind of confirm to you that that load is above a 10 RM load. So first rep velocity is a pretty good predictor of the percentage of one RM that you're training at. So if you, um, you know, have a load that you're very confident is within that eight to 10 RM range, you can just write down the velocity so that as you progress and get stronger, you know that that's the velocity that you're looking for to stay above that 10, 10 to eight RM load zone. So I think that's another advantage is like, you know, when, when we're training in those lower RPE zones, uh, you're not going to be sure. And, and, and that's, you know, in these lower fatigue strength blocks that we've talked about, that may not be the time and place logistically, like we talked about earlier to take sets closer to failure. So we need something to let us know, um, Hey, you are in that 10 RM load range that you're, you're good to go. And the velocity can help accomplish that. Um, so I think that's another advantage, but, um, yeah, I think, I mean, as far as the right time to, to invest in one, it's, it's hard to say. I think, again, to, to be totally clear, we don't think this is totally necessary. But if you are interested in, in getting one, I do think that, you know, it is a valuable tool. And I don't really see a con to getting it, you know, as soon as you want to start playing around with one. Um, I don't necessarily see um, too much of an issue with that. However, I will say standard caveats for early trainees apply realizing that in the grand scheme of things, this means nothing for your long-term progress. Consistently train, and that means not a month, that means years. Realize that, you know, that is gonna be the primary thing that's gonna, that's gonna contribute to progression. Train relatively logically and train hard. Like those are the three things that are gonna contribute to progress the most, not the fact that you have a velocity tracker. So- It's a toy. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. So like, I think, go ahead, Josh. I was just like, part of the reason I got one is is because I wanted to be able to better conceptualize and relate with research. Um, and, and I don't mean to like kind of demean velocity-based training by calling it a toy, but I mean for for individuals interested in training for powerlifting and you already have access to RPE, um, you know, I, I think it's it's icing on the cake like Zach said. So, so yeah, continue Zach, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're good. I mean, that's, that's the reality, like you said. I think one thing that I will mention is that over time, uh, the LPTs that are on the market have gotten cheaper. 
Um, so they're still going to be in like that $400 range as far as I know right now, which is obviously no, no, uh, something to blink your eye at, but, um, you know, the gym aware I think is like $2,000. So I think it, it's come a long way in the sense that, you know, they are becoming more and more affordable. And I'm sure that as this continues to get more popular because everybody loves objective metrics and data and numbers. And I'm sure that that will probably bring the price down even further. I, I know there's a ton of different things that have come out that aren't LPTs that to my knowledge, haven't been validated in the research, like the push band. Um, there's some other apps I think that have even tried to measure velocity and there's, so there's a ton of different ways to do it. Um, I just, to my knowledge, an LPT is the only thing that's been validated in the literature to be both valid and reliable, but I could be wrong about that because that's definitely not my area of expertise, yeah. but. I, I want to say there might be some papers on the push band in particular. So don't, don't quote us on that by any means. Yeah, um, yeah. There's papers are, are, on it. I just don't think it's, it's, uh, the proper validity and reliability statistics, but I, again, not my area, but that's. Yeah. My yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying don't quote us on that. And there's probably cool stuff out there that we're turning a blind eye to. Um, yep. so do, do your due, do, do your due diligence looking into it. Um, so yeah, that's really all I have to say. Cool. All right. Ready for the next one? Let's do it. All right. I think, I think Trey will like it if we give him a shout out. You think so? Yeah, we can give Bradley a shout out. All right. Shout out to Trey for this question. I, I think this is his question at least. Um, we've talked about right. it. I'm pretty sure. Okay. What do different types or disciplines of athletes get right? And what do you think each discipline could learn from one another? So for example, so like some of these disciplines would be bodybuilders, powerlifters, crossfitters, um, or even football players in the weight room. So what do each of them get right? And what could we, we take away from, from each of them? Let's, let's keep the focus on, on powerlifting. And then, yeah, let's, let's just for simplicity's sake. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, my, my head immediately, so I have a, I have a background in team sports and that's kind of why I got into lifting weights. That's kind of um, what I initially wanted to do is be a strength conditioning coach and team sports and all that. Um, but my head immediately goes to that comparison. And, and we've talked about this ad nauseum many times of how different lessons from team sports and being around that atmosphere um, are different from people that, you know, in, in kind of today's day and age, there's a lot of people that find powerlifting as their first sport. And that is just something we didn't have um, growing up when, man, look at that, look at that old man timer comment right there. That's, that's uh, interesting to say the least, but, uh, but yeah, we, I mean, it's just, it's just the fact that I don't, I don't think many, many people that I know of in, in my kind of age range um, found powerlifting as their first sport, which I think is fairly common nowadays. Um, and I think the first thing and the main thing that comes to mind that just kind of, I think is good crossover is that from team sports, the one thing that is drilled into your head is delayed gratification. And I think you understand that, you know, every single piece of work that goes into a season or goes into a preparation for a game will eventually be paid off, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that right then and there. Whereas in powerlifting, you are literally doing the sport. You are literally doing the activity, especially if you're doing heavy singles on a frequent basis every single day. And it's very, very difficult to remove ego and remove um, a short-term mindset from that session, that set, that repetition and say, you know what? Even if this doesn't go the best, if I make a mistake, maybe my performance is down. It's very difficult to remove your mindset from that. 
and understand this is just part of a, a, a larger picture and a larger uh, time, time frame of development. You know, I, I immediately think, start thinking of football and you, you have months of two days, you have practice, you have all this stuff in the summer, seven on sevens, all this stuff that isn't truly gratifying in the sense, like you don't get to play under, under the lights in front of fans and everything, but all of this eventually leads up into a, a more gratifying experience in the end. So I think that's the main thing that comes to my mind from that crossover. And I think it, it can be said the other way too, that, you know, powerlifters, they take every training session and like I said, every repetition, maybe with a little bit more, a little bit more focus, a little bit more intent because it is so specific to what they're trying to improve that I think, you know, the same can be said for like a football player. Like if you're doing a very isolated drill, it's just pretty common that you're not going to take that with the same intensity as a play in the fourth quarter of a tied game. Like it's just not, it, it's hard to compare those things, but powerlifters, you know, there's a lot of guys that wear singlets for every single session. They do the exact same approach to the bar as they, what they would on a, during a meet, they play the same song that they want to have for their third attempts. Like that is something that I do think that that level of preparation, consistency and, 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 re, and repeated, um, processes leading to to what you're ultimately trying to approve i do think that is something that is a benefit now like i said i do think that can get taken to an extreme where you where you lose that that long-term mindset and you know josh we've talked about that a ton you've lost that ability to to kind of take a step back zoom out and realize that what you're doing right now may be a small piece in the grand scheme of things and it may not be a a a time period where you're going to see exactly linear progress and i think just having that having that ability to delay gratification, I think is a huge, huge, uh, advantage of, of, of playing a, and it doesn't even have to be team sports. It can just be something that maybe is outside of powerlifting where the, the goal and the training are so, so aligned. Yeah, that was, that was largely focused on team sports. Um, and I, I agree with basically all you said. I mean, I think, I think the, I think a lot of, football players that come to us or former football players that come to us, you, you can kind of tell they have a little bit of a different mindset as it, as it comes to training and which is oftentimes a good thing, but it's also, you know, I think, I think it's, there's definitely a fine line between kind of this, you know, crazy high school football coach, uh, crazy high school strength coach um, attitude and like, you know, your soft power lifter attitude, right? We're all, we're often emphasizing things like playing the long game, um, you know, being smart about managing injuries and not rushing back and just taking your time and, and long-term adherence and enjoying the process. I think that's kind of on that, that kind of comes after the prerequisite of knowing how to train hard and knowing what actually an RP 10 is knowing how to actually push yourself physically. Um, so I think there's a very fine line there. And I, I think a good example of this is um, when I played, when I played basketball in high school, I dealt with, um, patellar uh, tendinopathy for my entire basketball career. Um, so I think I learned a lot of good things from, from playing basketball and, and, and getting exposure to private strength and conditioning in, in which, um, you know, a lot of times they were just essentially training me how to push myself, how to actually train hard. But also on, on the same token, I could have had a much better basketball career if I would have actually managed my workload properly. If I would have had somebody in my corner you know, t- telling me when to push and then pulling me back when I need pulled back. I think there's a fine line there where, you know, each of these disciplines could, could learn from each other. Um, 
Another of the low hanging fruit in terms of disciplines is bodybuilders. Um, we think good hypertrophy training is good long-term strength training. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you spend your first 10 years of, of lifting, not doing low bar squat, not doing sumo deadlift and not doing uh, maximal arch, maximal grip, uh, or maximal grip with bench press, and you're just doing bodybuilding movements, whether that be, um, hack squat, leg press, high bar squats, lunges, um, you know, longer range of motion pressing movements, um, you know, RDLs, hamstring curls, like that's, I think a lot of powerlifters are, are, can become hyper-specific in the sense that, you know, their volume work is five sets of four on the low bar squat. Um, so oftentimes one of the biggest changes we make with new clients is, Hey, let's get you onto, you know, a heels elevated high bar squat. Let's get you onto a leg press where you can get a really good quad feel. Um, you know, let's get you doing some deficit pushups in which you're getting a really good stretch in your pecs at the bottom of the range of motion. Um, so I think that's something that powerlifters can take away from kind of the bodybuilding world. Um, so I, I always try to keep, you know, half a foot in the, in the bodybuilding world, in the bodybuilding world and in, in that world, because I think at the end of the day for long-term strength adaptations, getting as big as possible is, is probably one of your, your best investments. Um, I think too, it's, it's, those two things are often like, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think they're often characterized that way. I'm not saying you were saying that Josh, I'm just saying in, in the, in the uh, kind of community, I feel like it's, it's talked about in that way. Sometimes like you'll hear powerlifters that'll say, yeah, guys, I'm just going to, I'm going to take a couple months off and do bodybuilding. Or you'll hear, uh, you'll hear, hear bodybuilders. Hey, I'm going to do some powerlifting and they transfer over to a uh, program where all they do is a competition SPD. There, there is a de definitely a middle ground to strike there where, you know, again, like we kind of talk about often, like as long as you have some modicum of strength practice with the, with the movements that you want to improve, you can just do a single on competition bench and then go do all your other work with dumbbells. Like, I don't see the problem with that, but people for whatever reason have like this block of like, I just don't see that oftenly done. And I think that's a totally fine approach. Like go hit a single at RP five to seven on competition bench and then go do the rest of your work on a chest press machine or dumbbells or something like that. Like that's totally viable. And it kind of gives you the best of both worlds. And I think it, it prevents hyper-specialization, but it also prevents you getting so far away from the movements that you have. Um, you know, it's, you can hear the, the example of hypertrophy blocks. And often Josh, when we talk about periodization, people kind of, uh, characterize it in this way. And like, you're going to lose all your strength skill. Oftentimes I've done a hypertrophy block where I come back and hit a single and I don't get any stronger. And my immediate question is always, were you still practicing the movements when you were doing that hypertrophy block? Because if you weren't, then you're going to have to regain a lot of that skill that you lost during that time period. And the muscle mass that you probably gained, you can't just hit the ground running and, and kind of uh, start to start to increase your strength there. So I think just, just in that example too, I think it's just important to find that there is a, there is a middle ground there where you can kind of, you know, take the best of, of bodybuilding and powerlifting to, to kind of maximize long-term strength in, in that, in that example. So, but again, we could probably talk about that for hours, keep it moving here. Um, this is a really good one. This is one that's interesting, kind of had me self-reflecting, but um, Josh, what do you think the biggest pitfall of the way we kind of program and conceptualize training is? Um. That's a tough one. I haven't, I haven't thought much about, um, you know, before, before we sat down to do this. Um, I mean, obviously if I saw a gaping hole, I would 
you know, if, if I didn't think what I was doing was best practices, I wouldn't be doing it. I, I, I just point that out to, even though it's quite obvious. Um, man, that's tough. Do you have any ideas? I, I'm just kind of thinking my, my biggest research interest is proximity to failure. Um, that's what I, I, I find super interesting. I think we could learn something in the next 10 years in which we could be so wrong. It's ridiculous or, um, you know, confirm some of our biases and we should have been leaning this way even more. I just, when I, when I kind of take the proximity to failure research as a whole, especially for hypertrophy, less so for strength, I think it's a little bit more clear for strength, but for hypertrophy, I'm like, if we had 25 more studies on this, I could easily see it going very strongly one way or the other. Um, so maybe that's the biggest pitfall is just, uh, our ignorance based on the, the holes in the research. Um, I was just going to take kind of just a larger philosophical view of it. And the, and the fact is that, you know, again, like Josh said, no matter what coach you go to, they're going to think that their practices are the best practices or else they wouldn't be doing things that way. Um, ultimately, you know, we talk about this a lot, but I think it really, it really is something that you need to consider is that I do think there is a personality in a, in a, uh, like each client could fit differently with a given coach. Um, I, I guess is one, one, one way I think about things like, you know, our methods, we think they're great. We, we think they're probably the best for most individuals. And obviously we have some, some degree of flexibility, but the, the, the reality is maybe our, the way we go about the, the problem solving process isn't totally aligned with, with an individual that maybe conceptualizes things in a different way. Now, I think you get a lot of, you know, kind of selection bias in the terms of, audience that we appeal to clients that come to us probably think in, in a similar light, but just kind of overall, I think, you know, maybe somebody comes to us who wants to do, you know, six days a week of complete maxing and they don't really want to do hypertrophy work and just some of the preconceived notions that, that maybe they um, have about training. And obviously there's some degree of education we can make to kind of um, cross that, cross that bridge and kind of meet in the middle. But um their expectations of what they think is going to help them may be so far removed than what we kind of would, would start with. Maybe that is a, is a, is a pitfall. Now I don't think that's necessarily unique to us. Like you said, I think this is a tough question from the sense that if we thought there was a pretty big gaping hole in what we're doing, it's going to be, we would, we would try to fix that. But just from a philosophical point of view, I do think that the expectations in which a client comes to us with, if they are not super well aligned with the way that we kind of conceptualize things, because expectations play such a big role in the process. I, I feel like that could be, could be somewhat of a mismatch. So like just an example, and I'm not talking badly about training methods, but if somebody that like really strongly identified with the West side methodology, for example, like they want to train four days a week, they want to have a max effort upper and lower session and a dynamic effort, lower uh, upper and lower session. And if we didn't configure training that way, and they really strongly identified with the fact that that was what's going to help progress them the best, maybe a coach that does that would have, have some, uh, beneficial results that we may not see. Now, again, in the grand, in the, in the long term, we probably would believe our methods are superior, but there is some degree of that that I do think is important to consider that, um, you know, believing in a program is part of the reason that makes it successful. And I think that's something to always kind of keep in mind. Um, but yeah, that's my best guess. Yep. I always, I always try to lean into kind of get an idea of, of the individual's background and, and what they're bought into. I like, like at the end of the day, expectations play a huge role 
and training outcomes. So if you can lean into that a little bit, I think there's a there's a uh, a balance to strike in terms of education as to what we think is is our best practices, um, as well as leaning into their expectations and their background and their influences. Are they training at a gym in which everybody's training, um, you know, with scientifically sound training, you know, DUP, all, all that stuff, or are they, you know, at a like Zach's at a West Side gym? You know, you, you might have to lean into that a little bit. I, I, I think I'd like to think I do lean into that. However, I think if somebody did, you know, at the very end of the spectrum, again, I don't think conjugate is the best or best practices, but there is somebody out there in the world where their best response from any training program is going to be to conjugate. And if I got a client right now and that was that individual, I don't think I could get them there right, right. now. I don't have a process to get them there right now. That's exactly what I, what I was kind of getting at is like, I obviously, like you said, I think it's important to leverage expectations and prior training history and kind of what, what the individual wants to do. Cause we think that is large, very, very important. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we could get so far out, outside of our kind of rabbit hole and our own biases to get someone to that, to that kind of conclusion, I guess is kind of, kind of the way I, I view it. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that's kind of true with whatever biases that you present, there's going to be some degree of that. So I don't know if that's necessarily preventable. Um, but you know, it just, it's just something to be aware of. And, and, and the reality is like, part of the game as coaches is meeting, meeting a client where they're at in terms of expectations and what they, what they believe is going to help them. And then we kind of meet them with the way that we view things and our processes. And it's just important to continue to update those things because, um, you know, people's mindsets are, are, aren't always going to be, um, you know, these rigid things that, that we can, um, apply our exact same methods every time and, and, and never skip a beat. So I think, yeah, this is another one we could probably go on forever that I don't want to yeah. ramble on too much, but I'd love to revisit this in like 20 years because there's, we're going to look back right now and <laughs> yeah. be things that we're, we're joking about that we're doing right now. And I think that's healthy. And I, I, I think if there was, if it was any other way, I think that would be a red flag. Yep. Um, so right now they're blind spots to us, but there are certainly pitfalls in the way we conceptualize things and the way other people in the evidence-based community conceptualize things that we're going to look back on and be like, those were big pitfalls. Um, but again, I think that's healthy. Um, so maybe that was a cop-out, but that's kind of my thoughts. All right. One, one more quick question at the end here, Zach. All right. Very last question we have before we wrap up. Does Zach own any socks that are not long and white? Well, the first thing I would like to say is that I would like to thank whoever asked this question because they clearly have been uh, paying detailed attention to my Too much attention. clear sense of sense of fashion. Um, if you've noticed, I have um, an elegant wardrobe that consists of many pairs of black shorts um, and about the same 10 t-shirts that I wear every day. Um, with that said, um, yes, I do own some other, other pairs of socks. Uh, the story of the White Sox comes from high school basketball. We were only allowed to wear white socks. Um, that is, was my coach's rule. So I bought a plethora of white socks. And that is currently, um, as I've told Josh, I do not frequently purchase clothes, which I'm sure is a shocker to our audience uh, watching my training videos. But uh, a lot of these socks are still from high school and they continue to work just fine. And I will continue to wear the white socks with pride, especially now that I know that I have some very interested um, viewers of my, um, my footwear. So I'll continue to do so. Um, I do have pairs of low black socks that I wear for special occasions. Um, but on the day in day out, I continue to wear. Did you went on last year? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you keep it on the low. We don't, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't wear them out, Josh. You got to keep them nice and uh, nice and fresh. But, uh, but yeah. So uh, most of my socks are long and white, and they will continue to be so. Quick question, Zach. Do you maybe I, I honestly haven't noticed one way or the other, but maybe the issue is that you pull them up too much in the sense that they're not scrunched, mm. so they kind of look like kind of goofy when you yeah. have them pulled up. Yeah, I, I'm all about pulling them up and then kind of pulling them back down and getting them scrunchy. You know? Yeah, I, I think that just that just demonstrates to me like how different of perspectives we have on life and that you're a pretty boy and I just kind of go for function. Um, I, I put the socks on to 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 um, prevent uh, perspiration on my feet and that's about all I think about it, Josh. So that's that's the kind of the method to the madness. Um, so I will continue to pull my socks higher to demonstrate the the the, the lack of care that I have on my, on my socks appearance. Thank you. Awesome. All right. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Um, we may or may not do this at regular intervals. We'll see. Let us know if you guys have any feedbacks. We'll probably be throwing out, um, some sort of way for you, for, uh, uh, you guys to, to ask questions for us to, to answer on here, um, and, and chat about, um, if you have any recommendations as to how we can improve this, let us know. Um, but with that, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, just real quick, probably plug our Instagram for a little bit more formal uh, educational content. Um, you can follow uh, our team at, at data driven strength on Instagram. Then you can follow uh, Josh and I at Zach.data driven strength and Josh.data driven strength. Um, and you can follow some of our stuff there. And yeah, it will uh, look to hopefully do these again, but again, no promises on the interval in which these are coming. Um, if you have any, um, you know, ways we can improve it, obviously drop that in the comments or the, I don't know if we're, we're going to post this on YouTube and podcast. So whatever the appropriate ways to comment on the, the content and let us know what you thought, uh, go ahead, do that. You can clearly tell where we are experienced influencers. So um, let us know what you think and we'll hopefully chat to you guys again.